My daddy's gone on, my grandpa's gone on, my great-grandpa's gone on. But they still live. You know, the, the spray is still here. Well, they tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise. Tell me of a home far away. This is the weaving studio. We have all of our floor looms out here, a couple counterbalance looms. Um, we have this really nice warping board wall that is my favorite feature of the studio. Um, and we've got sewing machines, washer dryer, our yarn closet back there, and then our equipment room. Hello and welcome everybody. You're listening to It Still Lives, the Foxfire podcast, where we take you on a journey through Southern Appalachian history, one story at a time. I'm your host, Cami Ahrens, and this month we are finally talking about weaving. I've gotten a lot of uh, requests from our listeners to cover the topic of weaving. Um, so throughout the month, I'm going to be doing little um, shorter episodes that will include historic audio about weaving or other topics. But today for our, our main podcast, we're doing something a little different. Um, Sharon Greist and I, back in February, recorded this interview um, when we took a field trip out to the John C. Campbell Folk School. For those of you who don't know about the Folk School, it's located in Brasstown, North Carolina. So it's not too far from here um, in Rabin County, Georgia. It was founded by John's wife, Olive, and it was intended to be an alternative to higher education for rural communities to get people to stay um, in their local areas and to preserve crafts and traditions. And it's actually uh, modeled after folk schools in Denmark around the turn of the century. And Olive actually went over there to study some of these folk schools to bring this type of methodology of teaching back to the mountains of North Carolina. So you can learn so much more about the folk school. It's a really incredible place and has an amazing history. Um, and I'll link information to get to the folk school on our website at foxfire.org. But we took this trip out to the folk school because we wanted to meet with their new resident weavers. So they have just an incredible wealth of people there who are so talented that teach, take classes there, that are artists there. And Allie Dudley is the new resident artist in weaving. And Allie's primary responsibilities are managing the studio and setting up class schedules. But as you learn through this interview, Allie has a lot of different ground that they cover. And Allie is a young weaver. Allie's only 27 and already extremely proficient in historic weaving. And so we are really interested in talking to them about their journey to becoming a weaver and just how they got so versed in these historic methods and reading historic patterns. So during this interview, we started talking to Allie about this journey to becoming a weaver and some of their primary responsibilities, but it evolved into this really great conversation about craft, the role of craft and community, um, and how traditions are changing over time. And so I think this is a really great place for us to start looking at weaving in Appalachia because it's such a broad topic with such a deep history. I think looking at the state of things now is a great lens for us to go back and look at some of the historic recordings that we have around the craft of weaving. So I hope you all enjoy this if you're a craft person or not. I think there's some really interesting things that come up in this conversation. And definitely if you're a weaver or a craftsperson, um, please reach out to us. We'd love to see 
what you're creating, we would love to share that as well. So without further ado, I'll leave this uh, interview to y'all. I'm Allie Dudley. Uh, We are here at the John C. Campbell Folk School in the weaving studio, and I am the resident artist in weaving, beading, lace, rugs, needlework slash thread art, and now also quilting and sewing. Very long job title. I um, mostly make the schedule of classes that like goes throughout the whole year. I'm in the middle of starting that now for 2023. And I also do like studio maintenance, set the studio up for classes. Um, yeah, make sure everyone has what they need in the studio. Right now my loom is in storage. Um, I did have my loom set up in my house when I was living up the road, but it was like a really small house, very tight fit. Um, so I was doing a lot of like small pieces and sampling because it was hard to like put a ton of yardage on the loom if I didn't have anywhere to stand to set it up. Um, but I've been doing a lot of weaving in class this year because I've also been the like on-call person to come in and assist if people needed it. Um, so I had a really fun time this like in September, I think Susan Levier was here. I helped her with her counterpane weaving class, which was really fun. Um, I got to do wedge weave tapestry with Connie Lippert. Um, and I also get to take a lot of classes here as like a perk of being a resident artist. So I've gotten some studio time in, um, when I was a kid, my grandma Tommy had a knit, very classic story. I feel like a lot of people who are into textiles, like it was like someone in their past as a child, like gave them some knitting needles. And I knit a lot of like scarves for a long time until I was in college. And I was like, I should try a sock now. So I knit a pair of socks and then I got into cross stitching and um, I had a friend um, who went to, I had a lot of friends who went to Warren Wilson College and I was visiting them. This was like before I moved to Asheville when I was still living in Chicago um, and my school started really late. So I came to visit them in like September after their classes had started. And one of my friends was um, on their uh, like work program in the weaving studio. So students like go take classes and volunteer and like have a work crew that they're on. So she was a weaver. She was like, oh, you are a knitter. You might like weaving, you should come check it out. And I went to the studio and she had me thread a loom. And I was like, this is so cool. Like the most boring part that like everyone hates usually. I was like, I love this, (laughs) let me get in here. And there was someone who was weaving a double bow knot coverlet that was on a loom. And I saw that and I was like, I need to do that. That's my future. And then I went back to college and Googled Chicago weaving. Something's got to be out there. And I found the Chicago weaving school. So my senior year, I started taking classes there on the weekends. They're like four hours. They teach you like a sampler and then you can kind of do your own thing. So my first solo project that I did was a double bow knot like placemat that my parents still have on their table and it's so wonky like my beat was so off it took me the whole thing to like get it concise so like one half is like way stretched out and the other half is like all squished together but it's cute and it reminds me of how far I've come as a weaver <laughs> there's just something about like weaving that Everyone through like all of time has like found some sort of like weaving or like weaving adjacent like craft. And it's just such like an integral part of who we are as humans that I really feel like it's so powerful to like have a connection to weavers of the past by using their drafts and 
I'm not super interested in like figuring out anything new and crazy because everything's already been done and weaving especially people have been doing it for literally thousands of years and like why why would I try and like figure out this problem by myself when someone else has already done it and like I can just go work through their notes and see what they did and learn a lot so I think the weavers of the past knew what they were doing and it's very helpful to like have them to lean on overshot coverlets are really like my jam um, because like I saw it's I don't know what it is about it it's like I saw it and I was like I need to do this and so I think that's like why that like opened the door into historic textiles for me um, and I thought that I like knew what I was doing with weaving coverlets I was like I've done a coverlet um, I know how to weave overshot and then um, in the fall of 2020 I came here to the folk school to do their weaving mentorship program which is like four weeks of classes with four different teachers um, and one of them was Susan Levier, who um, I assisted her counterpane class this summer too, but she's now my buddy. Um, and she's really special and like knows so much about historic weaving because um, she's been doing it her whole life. And she, the class that she taught was um, on overshot and how to weave it and all the different things you can do with overshot wraps. And she really like whipped my butt into shape weaving overshot I like I I didn't know how to do it until like she actually really walked me through it so that really also got me into like looking more into different kinds of structures because the thing about weaving overshot and the way Susan taught me to do it was you read the cloth instead of just reading the draft so I feel like up until then I really was like I would take a draft out of a book and I would write it out um like do my little like draw down graph and then I would sample it and weave it, but I would just be following the paper that I had written out. But with Susan's method of weaving overshot, you you um, treadle everything the way that the draft is um, like drawn in to the loom. So you're basically doing like sort of a mirror image like on a diagonal. And there's like a line that you can see in the pattern if you're doing it right that you can go off of those blocks in the in the cloth instead of reading the piece of paper. Learning how to do that and read the cloth instead of reading the paper really helped me understand like the structure and like why I was weaving in that sort of way. And it helped me see what I was doing instead of just going off of the paper. So it was like, it was like I had just been like reading books and then like someone actually showed me how to do it for the first time. And I actually understood what I was supposed to do. It's very liberating. It's a big jump. But then once you have mastered that skill, mm -hmm. uh, you know, people talk about reading your knitting so that you can see what should come next. Yeah, and it helped me a lot with like decoding drafts since then. So like working with the counterpanes, it's a completely different structure. Um, Overshot is like a plain weave, like ground cloth that you then take a pattern weft and like put in and out of it. So if you like go in and snip out all of the wool and pull it out, you'll just have like a plain weave fabric. Um, but, uh, the, the counterpanes were, was a lot of like lace. So threads jumping over like two and under two or like over four or six or whatever. And I had not really like investigated that structure as much. Um, but I went in and I took a bunch of the drafts from the Francis Goodrich counterpanes and coverlets book. I was working through some of the drafts from this lady, Sarah Nelson, who lived outside of Asheville that Francis Goodrich got a bunch of drafts from. 
and tried to work off of her historic notation because I would like the computer drawdowns in this book are like very tiny. You you just have to like blow them up on a copier or something if you want to be able to see them. So it's like, I'll just go in and like test myself a little bit and use her drafts that um, historic notation is written out differently than um, weaving books these days. So a lot of people don't learn how to do that. And Susan actually taught us that in her class too. So that's been really fun to like have that skill and be able to go in and actually see the notes of historic weavers or like weavers from 100 or 200 years ago instead of relying on someone else's interpretation of them. But then I would take those and then see if I could figure out, like follow her written instructions and see if I could figure out how to make the cloth she was making. Cause her instructions also were like, she didn't tell you the tie up that you needed to use. So like in weaving, like, each treadle is attached to like one or more shafts or harnesses and it's a, like you can't really read the pattern unless you know which ones are like pulling on which ones because then you don't know what threads are actually moving up and down so her instructions were like step on the one on the left and then step on the one on the right and then go back and forth between the two in the middle for a while until you get it this long and then go back to the other thing and so it was like a really fun puzzle to like look at the picture of her fabric and see if I could figure out her tie up and what the heck she was talking about. So before I moved here, I'm, I'm from Missouri originally, I probably had never really seen Overshot, um, but I know it's really strong here regionally. Do you know what the history of Overshot in this region is and why it's so prominent in Appalachia? I don't know like how it came to come here i know that there are it's like from europe so we like weavers brought patterns that they knew um when they moved over here but i do know that i the reason why it was so popular you know it was an easy thing for people to do is because when you thread a loom for overshot you can leave out that pattern and just end up with a plain piece of cloth so people used to wind on like 40 yards onto their loom huge just like so much yarn instead of winding on for like one project and then finishing it and then doing another one with a different warp like a lot of modern weavers do they would just do that and then you could weave your shirt fabric and then you could also with that threading like weave a blanket and then once that was done go back to your plain weave or you know pull out the threads and re-thread them but it was a lot more economical to just wind on the warp once every couple months or whatever and then uh, weave off what you needed. So it's a very versatile structure is like why I think it was so popular. That's really interesting. I, I just didn't even think about the fact that it was plain weave. Um, and another thing I wanna jump to is during your gallery talk at Raven Gap Nakuchi, you had this fantastic definition of craft. And I was just wondering if you'd be willing to share that with us. I keep having more thoughts about it and like wanting to like tweak things, but craft is like so special to me and like why i think that it's important to people and communities is because you can't do it by yourself you like need to have a foundation of a community knowledge or like shared tradition in order to do it i could never in my entire life have like designed a loom from scratch without ever having seen one and then like knew what to put where and then like made cloth, like that just, it would not have happened. It's just like people have knowledge already and it's out there if you wanna look for it. I think that art, you can 
it's like and this is totally fine i'm not like this is not me like taking a dig at people who do like you know art that's like without like having a formal background because i think that's cool and great um but like you can just make art without having any formal training in like painting or drawing or whatever and you can make great art doing that but i think craft if you want to make be a good if you want to be a good craftsperson or like a skilled craftsperson you need to have community around you and share knowledge do you want to share your definition again sharon I had um, been in touch with Tommy Scanlon, who is Professor Emeritus at North Georgia College. We've known each other for, I guess, close to 40 years. And I had said that I felt that craftspeople were predominantly producing something utilitarian. Now, it could also be beautiful. Um, and, you know, an exception to that could be like a wood carver who sets out to carve an owl, you know, and the purpose of that owl is to be beautiful. Um, you know, you're not going to take that owl and use it as a hammer or, you know, it doesn't have to be utilitarian. But I think most craft is utilitarian as opposed to when an artist sets out. Now it can be painting uh, when I think of art, it's usually two-dimensional, although I consider Tommy's work as art. It's two-dimensional tapestry weaving. Um, but I think when an artist sets out to work, they either are trying to um, capture a memory or encapsulate an emotion or evoke an emotion from the person who's viewing their piece. There's, there's no emotion when I sit down and weave 16 teal plaid kitchen towels one after another after another this week. You know, that's, you know, I'm proud of my work. I do my very best. You know, I, I think there's also a sense of lineage in craft and I, think there's a sense of memory even if maybe you don't have that specific memory because when I think and, and this is all from personal experience and, and my personal emotions but I'm thinking like when I see something that's a product of a craft like um, like weaving like like kitchen towels of yours um, it's something that immediately takes me to the sense of connection um, like you were saying and the, the sense of community um, and the sense of a, a memory that's something past and I think it's just a natural byproduct of this lineage of human connections through craft but you know again this is this is all personal bias speaking i've been realizing lately that the like lineage is like really in integral to me in my life and like why i think that craft is so appealing to me like tommy is my tapestry mentor um so special love having her around and she um i talked about this in my talk too um, she has like helped give me like help me realize the importance of lineage too because she whenever she teaches tapestry is like oh I learned this from Archie Brennan and Susan Martin Maffei and they do it like this and that's why I do it like this and now I tell people like Tommy does it like this and that's why I do it like this so it feels like really special to have that um, connection and I think that I've been I've also been working a lot with Martha Owen who is the knitter, knitting, spinning, dyeing, felting, surface design resident artist here. 
she's really great has a flock of sheep does a lot of like knitting with hand spun and that's a lot of what I've been doing with her I took a class with her and Melissa Weaver Dunning in December that was really special and just like doing the spinning and like weaving with it and making my hand spun cloth and being in a group of other people who all wanted to be doing this kind of thing that I felt we all just and we were singing a lot of songs too it just felt so special and I was like dang why is not like every everyday life you know now like this and sometimes I feel like bitter that I uh, it, I didn't have this connection to this like important part of humanity for so long you know like who, who would I be if I had been brought up in this kind of community um but then it's also like I'm what's what am I doing now with that like why am I here mm -hmm. there's got there's got to be a reason do you feel that it's different here? Because as I said earlier, I, I grew up in the Midwest and this was like not a thing. <laughs> um, and it's not just like these little communities. I'm, I'm sure they existed and I just didn't know about them at the time. But, you know, I feel like there's this larger sense of a regional identity and a connection to place um, and a connection to the history of these crafts. Do you feel that it's different here in Western North Carolina, Southern Appalachia? Yeah, I think so. And I'm not really sure why exactly. There's probably someone's probably written a book about craft identity in Western North Carolina. Um, but uh, I definitely I was living in Virginia last year with my parents during the pandemic times when it first started. And I really felt like a disconnect from craft community. Like no one I was hanging out with was like a crafts person. A lot of farmers, which was cool and like another thing that I was trying to, you know, bring into my life. But I felt like I was missing that. And I'm sure there were folks out there. But, um, yeah, I, I think Brasstown is interesting, too, because a lot of people here are transplants who have come here specifically because of the craft culture. So definitely a skewed perspective <laughs> living in Brasstown because but I, you know, even I was up in I guess I was in Asheville and like knitting somewhere and some person was like oh my god you're a knitter that's so wild like do you do you sell them like can I buy something and I was like no like I'm just knitting a sweater and like it reminded me of when I used to knit on the bus in Chicago and like random strangers would be like well that's so weird but here in Brasstown nobody ever does that because everyone knows how to knit and it's just normal it's a normal part of, part of life doing your craft so do you think it's a a regional, you're asking a question about region. I'm wondering if it isn't more um, related to our specific time in history. Mm. 150 years ago, I don't think it would have been uncommon. You know, this used to be an integral part of your community, especially in terms of building kinship ties, right, um, in your community. And, you know, so I'm thinking about this and like, what have we gained as things have changed but also like maybe what have we lost too yeah I'm that's the loss is something that I feel like I'm working through right now like realizing for me personally that there's like just been this huge loss of knowledge and like where can I find it like it's not gone it's out there somewhere but feeling like I've missed out and how do I make up for all of that <laughs> all that lost time you know you know, and I, I think there's more loss than just knowledge. I think there's like a whole piece of our 
culture and maybe even our existence and the way relate to people that's maybe been slowly eroded over time. There, I've recently read a, a, one of those little things that comes across on Instagram, you know, how the, um, the women in India, once they got washing machines and they weren't still washing their clothes down at the river together, you know, once they got washing machines after a number of months, there was just a general sense of just despondency and lethargy and depression. And they finally figured out that's because everybody was in their own home washing their own clothes in their own machine instead of gathering in community at the river. You know, that that, that was so important to our this emotional psyche. And I think we had somewhat of an awakening during the pandemic, too. I think people really realize that we can't just be isolated, independent people. But on a more, like, positive note, you're talking about the future and, like, what do you do with this knowledge you've gained? Like, how do you see opportunities increasing for access to craft? Because I think that's another huge thing is, you know, if you're living in a small apartment or you don't have a house, you don't have space for a loom, or if you're a parent or a guardian with kids and you have to work two jobs, like, you can't afford time or money to to put that towards craft so do you have any thoughts on ways of making craft more accessible to like diverse communities yeah that is something that i've been thinking about since at um the talk at ribbon gap beth loveland asked me that question and i realized first of all that it's not craft's fault that it's inaccessible right now so like having everything be automated you know people don't need to weave their own clothes anymore so nobody has a loom. People don't need to be doing all of these things with their hands um, because you can just buy something that's so like cheap. Like, why would you spend the time doing it if you were busy? You know, it's made life easier, but also has made craft inaccessible. So like there used to be a weaver in everyone's neighborhood. And if you really needed to, you could go and you could use a loom and you could weave yourself something. Or like you could find people around you who had the tools and you could borrow them in your community and like share the tools, share your time, share your knowledge with each other. So realizing that I think helped me be like less defensive about being a craftsperson because I'm like, I want everyone to be able to weave, but it's like, I know that not everyone can. Still working on the next step for that, but having the tools, having community space, I think a lot of it is, is like really basic stuff in terms of like having a shared community space to work in but I don't know how to like, like build that right now, you know, it, it is tricky. It is tricky. We've, we've done some stuff with classes and I find kids are really interested in a lot of this stuff. And there are so many ways that you can, you know, use recycled materials or other things to just get them started. But it is challenging to find ways to make it accessible, especially if people don't come to you. Yeah. I think it's really important to be open to like new people i've heard people talk i this has not been my experience with older weavers but i know that a lot of young people get can get discouraged by older people like being like oh you have to figure it out on your own because like i had to do it like that so i i don't want that to like stop people from wanting to get into craft any weavers out there (laughs) listening to this (laughs) hit me up (laughs) 
one thing I am excited about for my future, very immediate future, I just got um, a grant from South Arts as a part of their Emerging Traditional Artist Program. So me and I think like 23 other people also got this grant. It's $5,000 for like learning opportunity. We have three years to spend it and we're gonna be doing um, some gatherings. We had one on Zoom already and we have another one coming up. But I am really excited to take this money and go to Marshfield School of Weaving in Vermont. They'd focus a lot on historical textiles. So I'm really excited to learn about that. There's like a lot of ways that they weave. They use only barn looms or antique looms up there from like the 17, 1800s. That's not something that people really still do down here. Like people have got barn looms, but there's a lot of like tricks that you need to know to weave on them. So I'm really looking forward to um, getting access to more of that historical weaving knowledge and be around tools that like people built by hand and start the years turning on me learning more about woodworking. Have you found that people are receptive to you as a young weaver? A lot of people, when I first, when I got this job, um, I heard from like Tommy and a couple other folks that they were happy that I was here in the weaving studio because I'm so like historically minded um, and a young person that they felt like uh, everything was going to be okay. <laughs> you know, like I'm not trying to like throw out all of our uh, old, old books or anything. And this is my other soapbox I'm on is like get kids doing crafts or like hand skills because when I was a kid, I, I went to the summer camp that I worked at, the Living Arts School, and they had us like carving spoons with knives when we were like nine, 10. And not that like the spoon carving itself like made me like mature faster, but I think just like allowing kids, you know, to make mistakes and like learn how to do things. They are so much more responsible than we give them credit for. And if you, if you give them something that offers them the opportunity to have like real responsibility, they usually flourish. I think it's just, so important for kids to get hands-on work. Before the pandemic, I uh, had two, two different school groups, um, two young fellows, they were each about 10 years old, and each one of them said to me after they saw the weaving, they said the exact same thing, which is what made my ears perk up. Each one of them said, I'm quoting word for word, they said, that looks so satisfying and it's the word satisfying that really made me think oh there's hope that yeah. all this video stuff maybe they're finding out is not satisfying and that there's more out here do you wish that we could get back to a barter kind of society oh yeah you know i do <laughs> yeah i've got you know a lot of big dreams that i don't you know it is hard thinking about like the kind of world I want to live in and like how practical is that right now and you know maybe like how I feel like how do we get back there is not necessarily the question I should be asking myself but like how do we move forward together in community and like take care of each other. Well thank you so much for joining us.
this week. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I could have sat and talked with Allie and Sharon just all day. It was such a great trip and I I really can't wait to go back out and to learn more about Allie and, and to watch them grow in this position, but also to meet other artists at the folk school as well. So again, if you are interested in Allie's work or if you're interested in the folk school, Head on over to our website, that's foxfire.org. Um, scroll all the way to the bottom. You'll see there's a post, a series of posts at the bottom. It should be the first one on the um, left. I'll be linking information from our website to the folk school and to Allie's work so that you can see beautiful examples of overshot and other types of weaving that Allie does. And make sure to tune in throughout the month as we get to release those um, other episodes. They'll give you a glimpse into how weaving was done when Foxfire first got started. And I've got another great uh, interview lined up for you next month. So please be sure to join us in April as well. Thanks, y'all. We'll talk to you then. Take care. If you don't like that, you can throw it away. <laughs>